Hello, and welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we cover John W. Campbell Jr.'s 1938 legendary sci fi novella, Who Goes There? Now let's head on down to Big Magnet. To our third project yeah it's a bit spooky <laughs> yeah i mean it's uh it's at least creepy that's for sure um we're getting into uh the book that inspired the movie the thing well the famous 1982 movie by uh, john carpenter we'll be talking about that next week but this week we are going to discuss the novella i'm excited to talk about it how about you yeah i didn't even know that who goes there existed until we were checking out perspective projects for ink to film so just knowing that this spawned the thing i was i was on board to read it i mean it came out in 1938 and being a more modern book reader i was a little worried that it might be dated or or not mm-hmm. as approachable but i i think that it was fairly approachable and and it wasn't a tough read no not at all i agree it was um very accessible read and uh, I enjoyed it, you know, and it's a short read. And if anybody wants to check it out, I mean, you can listen to the Audible book like we did. Um, but there's also, I think, a PDF online readily available. I'm not sure of the legality of it, but when you Google who goes there, it's like one of the top results. And you can just read it easily that way if you wanted to do that to follow along. But I don't think it's required. Um, and if you've seen the movie, you probably have the gist of what happens. And you can just kind of hear us talk about the differences. Um, Although we're going to save most of our movie discussion for next week. I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about John W. Campbell Jr. Because I did some looking into him. And he's an interesting guy. Did you uh, you do any of that? Uh, Slightly. I, I saw... That he was a he was a sci-fi guy. Like he whether he was he was creating it or facilitating it, he was he was involved heavily in sci-fi. Yeah, and um, I mean that's true. Um, and so this story uh, is, I mean, famous for being adapted several times. It actually first inspired a movie from the fifties called "The Thing from Outer Space." From another um, world. Ver- oh, thing from a- okay, sorry, a thing from another world. Yeah, have you seen that movie? I have seen it. I watched it for a class, but I barely remember it. We were okay. I'll actually get more into it when we're talking about the movie. Yeah, I have. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I have. I did not see it. Um, but I, from what I heard, it was uh very different, and the the thing was more of like a Frankenstein monster or something. A little bit, yeah. It it it's it's weird. It's definitely not very faithful to the this source material. Now, I think we both listened to the Audible version of this, right? Correct. Yeah, and this was read by William F. Nolan, who is an author who famously wrote the book uh, Logan's Run, which was also adapted into a film in the 70s. Do you Are you aware of Logan's Run? Have you seen that? Yeah, I'm, I actually really enjoy Logan's Run. That's a, that's a classic in my mind. 
Cool. Yeah, I actually haven't seen it, but I, when I heard that, I, I, I recognized the name and I was like, interesting. So the book, uh, yeah, on Audible is read by this other fairly famous author, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and he, I guess he knew Campbell. So this story first appeared in Astounding Magazine when he published it under pen name. Later, it was put in a bunch of different uh, anthologies over the years, including Analog, which is a pretty famous sci-fi magazine. He's known as being a famous influence editor, and he helped develop uh, many different sci-fi authors uh, like uh, Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and L. Ron, L. Ron Hubbard, just to name a few. So a lot of people think of him as being one of the most influential visions or minds in what's often called the golden age of science fiction. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a big name guy who had a very lasting impact. He seems like the guy who, you know, people would turn to to kind of punch up their their sci-fi writing and and so he, a lot of his influence can be seen today still. Yeah, um he he was known for demanding his writers understand both science and people, which I think is a hallmark of modern sci-fi is that you can't just can't just be a, you know, scientific uh discussion. It's got to also have real characters and 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 believable people. And those two kind of coming together, he's that was kind of his thing. You can tell in this story that he he didn't mess around when it came to the science too, because like you could tell he was well read and he knew what what he was having the characters talk about, and he seemed he wasn't you know just making up things that weren't true. He was he was using fairly accurate data. It felt almost like a borderline like hard sci-fi to me, um, and that this, it has hard science. Now the part of the problem is I think we're talking about cellular science and stuff like that, and that has come a long way since 1938. So I think some of the ideas maybe were very cutting edge and didn't quite hold up. Um, and maybe were disproven over the years or the thinking has changed. Um, but for the most part, it seemed like it was a really well-researched smart novella, I would say. Now, the man isn't without controversy. It's noted that he held many racist views um, that he would talk about in public. Um, he was known to say that he thought that there were natural-born slaves who would be unhappy to be free. Wow. I had no idea. He was a uh, outspoken defender, uh, outspoken defender of smoking and big tobacco. He attack he would attack all the ads that were coming out, uh, you know, saying that it was unhealthy. Weird thing to fight well, for. Well, he was a lifelong smoker and he just yeah. like but like the thing is he would try and debunk like the science of it and like call it all call it all hogwash and stuff. And then he became obsessed with some fringe science himself, um like especially uh ESP and like uh, you know, psychic abilities, he became really interested in that, that research and a big believer in it. And we'd get a little bit of that in here, kind of talked about. Um, and then he famously became interested in Dianetics and had a you know his connection with Elwan Hubbard and Scientology. You know, so um, his 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 controversial uh, views started to kind of alienate him from a lot of these writers that he helped form, including Heinlein. Uh, people who would say that they'd read these editorials he would publish and, and be sickened by them. So especially later in his life, I think he got a little bit extreme. And uh, so it's interesting because like in some way you can say that kind of tarnished his legacy a little bit, but you also don't want to downplay what he did for the, for the genre. And I think overall he's pretty well re respected. Um, I think a good proof of this is that there are several awards given annually in his name still, um, including the John W. Campbell Award for Best Science Fiction Novel, 
and the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, which includes sci-fi and fantasy writers. Those are both really respected uh, awards that I have heard of, so it's interesting to think about his legacy. I'm not going to pretend to be some sort of scholar. I just did a lot of quick slapdash research before we did this, so um, I don't want to go into... I don't know enough. I'm sure there are plenty more stories, maybe some really bad ones, maybe some really great, you know, really positive ones. I don't know. But I just f- figured it was worth it was worth mentioning. Yeah, I had no idea about about his somewhat you know tar- his tarnished re- legacy. And um, having just watched a documentary the other day about Scientology, I, I just like find it really interesting that he was working closely with with L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I think I'm ready to to dive into this uh, novella. How about you? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so uh, right off the bat, we're in Antarctica. Um, there is a a expedition that seems to be about investigating some magnetic anomalies. This group is down in, in investigating. I wanted to say that he leads off this novella by a long description of smells, which is a really, as a writer, they say that if you can include smells, it's a really evocative sense. And they can really uh, bring bring things to life for the reader. And we're hit with a bunch of these right off the bat, like seal blubber and sweat and cooking fat and dog smell and, you know, all this different stuff. Um, and I thought it really drew, like, it pulled me into the scene in a way I don't expect from a lot of older uh, older things that I read. Like, it was, a, it was a really cool attention to detail that I appreciated. And then we, we get this group that are standing around the frozen body of a creature and um, talking about what they're going to do with it and discussing whether or not they're going to thaw it out. Uh, We meet McCready, who is described as a looming bronze statue. Him being like a bronze statue gets repeated multiple times throughout the novella. And we meet Blair and Commander Gary and a bunch of others. There's 37 men here, it said. And um, there's a lot of there's a lot of characters in here. I was yeah when initially I I was a little overwhelmed I felt myself going back and like figuring out names and who's who and who was doing what just because it seemed like a lot of people for such a short story. Yeah, I mean because we're talking about it on a podcast, I definitely have tried to make sure I understand who is who and who did what. But there's a lot of names. It's a lot of just kind of dudes. <laughs> um so they all kind of blend together. Yeah, some of them end up not even really being very relevant. They just do like a thing or two and then aren't really mentioned again. Yeah, but we, we yeah, sometimes people will just kind of show up, say something, and then blend back into the crowd, and then you don't ever hear from them again. And so yeah, it can be kind of kind of tough, but our our major players will try and stick to McCready's definitely one, uh Blair and Gary uh, and several others. Now they they decide that or they the theory is that this ship has been that well first off that there was a ship and that it was crashed twenty million years ago. He thinks that it's because it tangled with the Earth's magnetic magnetic field and lost the oppressiveness of the cold and the isolation of this camp gets established pretty early, and I think it's really effective and it reminds me a lot of um, a lot of isolation type scenarios and horror like. Uh, you know, cabin in the woods or, you know, being alone on a spacecraft with an alien. Like these kind of things are all effective because you're so far from help. And I think this this base uh, 
is is he immediately establishes that that there this is a very dangerous area and it's very far out of reach now they talk about using uh thermite bombs to try and thin out the ice on the ship and in the process they destroy a lot of the a lot of the ship and the technology inside um and they you know we kind of mourn the loss of that and one of the things they have left is this this creature that's frozen and so they have this long talk about what kind of dangers there are going to be around thawing it out and uh blair who is a biologist is kind of leading this conversation and he points out that there are, could be microbes in here that we would be un, unable to handle uh, because we've never dealt with them and we haven't evolved to deal with them. This is something I still read about. It's still something that people still worry about, especially like coming in from outer space or or even thawing out things from, from deep below the ice. Um, there is a fear of this sort of thing, and, and for this to be coming up in 1938 seemed really uh, prescient to me. So Conant and Blair are arguing about whether or not they should do this, and, and Blair wants wants to thaw it out, um, but Conant is worried about the possible microbes and the the infectious and you know what kind of infectious stuff they might be releasing into the air. Uh, Blair seems convinced that because its biology is so different and complex that there's no way it could have survived being frozen. So they decide to do it. Blair's going to chip away at it with this kind of ice pick while Conant kind of watches. And then the rest of the group all funnels out and we get a scene where uh, Conant's like falling asleep while the, while Blair's picking away at the ice. And it's kind of, it's very ominous too, because, you know, it's talking about this creature melting. We should take a moment to describe the creature, I guess. It's, it's described as having three eyes like red eyes that are glaring with hate and malice, essentially. It's got these like worm-like hairs or something. It's it's pretty it's pretty creepy sounding. Um, very very monstrous, kind of reptilian and rubbery. Um, it's got a lot going on. It says it's described as having tentacle-like appendages. So yeah, pretty pretty monstrous. It's funny because one of the characters talks about at one point talks about how who knows maybe it's maybe like it's frozen in kind of like a malicious looking way and somebody says like who knows it could just be that could just be how it looks basically and then the other guy's like yeah well if it that's how it normally looks and it was just some sort of like that was its moment of acceptance and death when it was getting frozen and if that's its its moment of acceptance then i would hate to see it angry so it's just a lot of setting up for us to be like kind of scared of this creature yeah and of course like we know like this thing isn't actually dead and that 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 comes to be true. So there's a weird moment where Conant is looking at the thing, and he realizes that it is no longer sightless. And he kind of hears it moving, but then he like goes back over and sits down. Did you catch this moment? Yeah, he like doesn't. Um, he, he ends up like in some kind of trance or or something yeah. where he just doesn't he sees that it's like about it, it's like skin looks like it was armored before and now it looks more rubbery and and it's like about to break out of the ice basically and he just like walks he has a moment where he he thinks about like p- pouring like like lighter fluid on it and then dropping a cigarette on it but then he like stares at it for a while and then walks away and sits back down yeah so there's some talk about the thing possibly being telekinetic or having esp of some kind 
and one of the evidence that's given is they all have dr these dreams now that they found it and the dreams seem to kind of describe this thing and how it behaves and they think that this is some sort of projection or something that's coming out of there and so this is kind of i i took this to be proof that it has the ability to maybe not control but to suggest things and to and maybe put someone into a trance like you said and it uses its abilities to kind of make it so that it can it can it can get free without him raising the alarm so yeah my read of this was he as he walked over as we come to find out later the thing has abilities to replicate or like absorb and then and then replicate and be basically become whatever it absorbs and mm -hmm. so my read was when he was standing over it and staring at it, it was it was in the process of like reaching out its tentacles and like 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 basically absorbing him and then and then it became a thing. He became a thing. One of the so the you things think spawned. that you think that went what what went back over and sat back down wasn't even him anymore. Yeah, that's what I that's what I got out of it. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of that kind of a lot of stuff happens off page, and like. Yeah, it's hard to know at what time thing like who you know when people become monsters. When did that happen? And it's very mysterious. But yeah, so so what happens is, Conant says that it's gotten away. They all um, they hear these sounds from where the huskies are being kept, and they go down there. And there's like a, the 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 thing is like fighting with the huskies, and they're all like chewing it and biting it. And McCready uses this giant blowtorch. And um, they he he tells that they he tells somebody to go get a cable so they can like electrify it, and they so they do that. Um, the dogs keep biting the thing. They they have this big showdown in the in the corridor, where finally they electrocute it with this like device that gets thrown together. That's like these cables that shock it, and uh, then the dogs just like attack the body of it. I thought that, especially for a book that took place in 1938, I thought it was interesting that they thought to, I mean, electricity had been around, but I just thought it was smart of them to be like, let's take a cable and electrocute it rather than just continuing to blowtorch it. And it seems like the electricity throughout is is the most effective thing against the thing. Yeah, it seems that that seems to really get it. You, you shock it and it, it kind of turns into like a rubbery goo. So next up, we got Gary, and he's uh, Commander Gary, and he's saying that he wants to make sure this thing is finally dead for for real this time. And we get we get this is the first time where I noticed they said that it was part Charnock, which is the name of one of the dogs, and part thing. Essentially, that it had started to turn into one of the dogs, and I guess they interrupted it halfway through, and the thing they fought was this like hybrid version. Um, and then they start having this talk about how they think that if it had been given more time, it would have eventually turned into a dog and been indistinguishable from the other dogs. Maybe even to the point where other dogs wouldn't know that it, was, that it wasn't a dog. Um, so it's interesting kind of philosophical stuff starts getting pulled up about, you know, like if it's, if it's a monster, but it's, so, it's an imitation that's so good that even other dogs or uh, can't tell like what is it then and like and how does it think and and how is it still alien and and so then it's, they start bringing up the idea that it could be a person and doing the same thing to them and how that maybe it's so good at acting 
essentially that and with its basically with its um ESP powers it's able to know the thoughts and feelings of the people that it's become that it would be indistinguishable uh, which is really creepy and um it starts to be it starts to like lay down this which I think is the best part of this story is all of these guys start to look at each other with this suspicion like you know if it could be any of us how do I know how do I know who who here I can trust? This is where the okay. story be- goes from sci-fi horror to sci-fi horror mystery because it's like <laughs> there's it's it's just bending every genre and so we get to a point where there is this there is this horrific monster but the thing that's really scary is that isn't necessarily the I mean it is the monster but it's more of just not being able to trust anyone so it's like that can become even more dangerous than a, than a monster. That could be, as soon as you start turning on everybody, then, then you have, rather than having one threat and you guys coming together to fight it, you have everyone around you as a threat. So Blair is basically like driven mad by this knowledge, this, this idea. And he starts giggling and like saying that it's going to take over the world and that it wants to take over the world. And he, he sat, he sabotages the planes so that they can't get away, I guess. And so no one can leave. And then eventually he just lays down like giggling and crying and they're all like, okay, this guy's gone completely nuts. Um, he's not going to be, he's he's not going to be a help and he could potentially be dangerous and try and murder us all when he wakes up. Um, and they keep looking at Conant um, because he was the one who was watching it and thinking that Conant is, isn't really him anymore and that he is now, he is now one of these monsters. So a character named Norris uh, starts talking about the nightmares and how he had a premonition in his nightmares about how the thing can change shapes and take on take on these different forms and that him and McCready developed these theories about what this thing was going to be like. They know that it can read minds and mannerisms. And uh, by this time, the cook named Kenner goes to the galley and Dr. Copper... Um, which is like it's just mentioned in this way that like but like at this point whenever you hear someone doing something like that I always take it to be like it means something so even though it's just this offhand thing like he just goes walking off I'm like oh what does that mean and then we get a Dr. Copper who starts talking about a blood test and he thinks that if they harvest a bunch of dog blood they can make this like serum that they'll be able to mix in with like a blood sample from a human and they'll be able to to determine whether or not the thing is like in that person and there's a lot you get into like kind of a lot of like the science behind it and how there's like certain blood will reject other types of blood and and all this stuff i, I don't know how much did you get out of the kind of the science talk here because it was a little over my head and i'm not sure it holds up today so yeah the, even even i thought this was weird but this is where i felt like he was really trying to be as scientific as possible about it but basically what i kind of pulled from it was if you put dog blood into human blood the the human blood would would reject the dog blood but if you put dog blood that also had the thing blood in it into human blood the hu- the thing blood would kind of try to adapt and become the human blood and it wouldn't react or something like that but that's not what ends up really happening because there's like tainted specimens and stuff here in a second yeah it, yeah so that's the theory and um they're they're gonna do this test right and they're gonna develop the serum they 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 decide to lock up conant while they're figuring out this test and they also want to keep blair isolated they're gonna take him out to this like shack 
and put him out there and and lock him in and keep him away from everybody else. And they kind of get him out there and he is terrified and he thinks everybody else is, is one of the things and he doesn't want anyone to come inside and he barricades, basically barricades himself into this room even though he's locked in. They just kind of leave him there because he's he's basically gone mad at this point. Um, and they they go back and they they start to develop this blood serum so they can t- can check each other. McGreedy is the only one who's like kind of pointing out maybe at this point that like they're all just being crazy and he's like as far as we know this thing is dead and we killed it when we killed when we killed it in the you know when it was attacking the dogs but he even seems unsure about it and um, they all are looking and eyeing each other with suspicion. So next up we got the test starts to begin. They've developed this serum, and Conant's watching the test tube, and and it comes back that the test proves that Conant is a human, and they all relax, and everyone kind of starts to like walk off, and afterwards, um, Commander Gary kind of notices Doctor Cooper looking at this test tube, and he comes over and like I guess the test has just kind of shown now that the dog blood didn't react to the serum either which proves that the serum has been contaminated with monster blood, which means that which means two things. One, Conan, Conan is not necessarily not a monster because it was a false test. And two, since Commander Gary and Dr. Cooper, Copper gave their blood to make the serum, um, one of them is a monster. And he like announces this, and all of a sudden everyone just like stares at him, and then they, there's this really interesting conversation where they both talk about how they aren't monsters but they can't prove it but they also know that one of them is lying yeah and honestly in this in this scene i've grown to like well so far in the story i've grown to like uh, commander gary and so when i found out that he might it seems like he is going to be a thing because it's in cooper it's in dr copper's best interest to if he was a thing to you know make sure that the tests were invalid or whatever anyway so he could technically still be one but it just felt like they were leading it but he wouldn't have brought the idea is that he wouldn't have brought it up if he was a thing but then it's gary who points that out so there's all this really interesting stuff that that uh, campbell's doing here where they're both doing things that you wouldn't think it would do and that's i think it's also kind of the brilliance and the just how good this thing is at blending in that it's gotten really good at, at finding a way to make it seem like it couldn't possibly be, couldn't possibly be a monster. It's a reverse psychologying everyone. It's just using yeah. reverse psychology to, to make everybody think. But if this, have you ever, you've seen uh, Princess Brad, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. The the cup scene with the poison. That's what the thing uh-huh. is doing to all of the characters in this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so uh, they, they sedate, uh, copper mccready kind of takes over oh yeah gary says like you're in charge now mccready because he knows that now that he might be one of like a monster that no one can trust him we just got this really interesting talk about like not how they can't you can't know if someone's a monster or not you can't listen to anything they're saying and it creates this paranoia in this group that i find really fascinating and to me is the heart and soul of this of this story and what's made it so lasting and made it so interesting is it really highlights the like the locked perspective of yourself and how you can never really know another person's mind and really anything about them, d- despite what they may say. 
Or and dude, it's like even if yeah, even if their actions show something, they could still be thinking something differently. So it's like I get it's like unless you know someone for a certain amount of time, and even then you might not truly know. And you know that's I mean that's the basis of a lot of a lot of stories and and books and movies that have been made after this and you can take it to be a metaphor for so many things in real life right like you know people who are serial killers and everyone who knows them talks about how they were normal and how they seem perfectly fine or mass shooters um unfortunately we've been dealing with a lot of those in america and yeah people who know them can't believe it was them right and are totally stunned and say this person could have never done this and this is a great metaphor for that like how no matter what they say and what you think you know about somebody you never know what could be hiding like inside their mind so it's really creepy in that way too like that's that's a chilling thought yeah the something i was going to bring up is that that you basically just answered is sci-fi typically will have some sort of underlying social message or or something like that and i was wondering what you got out of the story and what like socially you think inspired some of this book in you know 1930s and i just yeah I, and I, I mean i i don't know i can't speak for campbell and say what exactly he meant by it um that's what i'm getting out of it as a modern reader for all we know you know he could have had more sinister things you know this could have been something about him distrusting other races i don't know um i don't want to put that in his mouth either because maybe you know what i mean that could have completely not been what's going on here I don't know. I don't. I I barely know anything about the man, so it's hard to theorize. But I can, with confidence, say that I thought about all these things, and I thought about how killers and and people who you know have dark secrets in our society often can hide in plain sight, and all the people who are close to them will never know. Um, and how how chilling that is. Before we get into the second half of this book, I want to take a moment to talk to you about Audible. We are affiliates with them, and we can offer you a free credit and 30 free days if you sign up through our affiliate link, audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. Um, you can go on there and find one of thousands and thousands of titles. I wanted to mention this book in particular. You can listen to this read by uh, another famous author. Um, I thought it was a really cool, cool thing to listen to. But if you also wanted to, if you wanted to try and get your bang for your buck uh, time-wise, you can go listen to the 30, 40-hour audio books of Game of Thrones, the Game of Thrones series. And um, I wanted to mention that because, well, I wanted to ask you, did you hear about Roy Detrice passing away? Yeah, I did. That's really unfortunate. Yeah, he was, he's the narrator, or the he reads the books, um, all the Game of Thrones series. And he I think his his voice was so iconic and he does just such a great job with those with that series i thought i'd highlight him and and say that to celebrate uh his life go out and listen to him read one of george R. R. martin's novels because i i think they're they're really good yeah roy detrice he he actually also played a role in in the tv show he he was um one of the maesters or something that was dealing with the he was wildfire. a pyromancer right yeah he was the that's exactly what it was yeah he was the, the pyromancer with the wildfire yeah so he uh what's cool is that they gave him that little that little cameo role because he like you said read the audiobooks and and i didn't even realize it until after he passed that he he had a little cameo in the show like that i actually mm -hmm. listened to the audiobook for the first novel a game of thrones uh, and he i think he does a great job he's one of my he like 
I've listened to a decent amount of audiobooks up to this point, and I think he's definitely one of my favorite readers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a great talent. So yeah, if you guys wanted to check that out, it's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film, and you get 30 free days, and you can you can snag that Game of Thrones with that free credit. Oh, I also wanted to point out, I, I, I read on there that you can exchange credits. So say you download uh, a book, uh, whether it be Game of Thrones or something else, and you don't end up liking it, you, that credit isn't just burned. You actually can exchange it. You can say, I didn't like the book that I, that I read, and they have an exchange por- program on there where you can switch it out for a different title. So yeah, it's really a, a, really a cool service. I've been, uh, I've been a member for a long time. Um, and if you if you want to sign up, you make sure to use our our link, and that's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. All right, so uh, McCready goes down to check on the um, animals. He when he returns, he's really ominous, and he says they're like they're all dead, now, all the dogs and all the cattle, and come to find out, they all had transformed into monsters, and it seems like McCready was basically doing a test of. I shot it through the heart, and if it if it died, you know, if it didn't die, then it was a monster, <laughs> which is a pretty brutal test to do. But it turns out they were all monsters, and including the milk, uh, or sorry, including including the cow, um, and at the realization of that, the the uh, Kenner, the cook, says, "Wait, how? You know, I what about I I milked them like an hour ago." And he says that he, you know, and it seems like people have been drinking this milk. So there's this whole like thing of like, oh shit, they milked a monster and they've all been drinking it. And like, what now? What does that mean now? And it really starts to get pretty, like, that's a pretty, pretty crazy thing to think about. And they test the milk, but like, it doesn't react. And so they're not sure if like, because it like, there was an imitation cow, maybe it could make imitation milk that would be indistinguishable from regular milk. I don't know, but this kind of drives Kinner mad. He's the next one who like kind of loses his mind. So as they as they talk about how the thing can be perfect replications, they're talking about they get into like the biology of it and how it's such an advanced creature that it's able to manipulate this the cells within its body to basically literally become the cells of another. And um, I, it got me thinking like it would be so interesting if we ever evolved to that point where we could we can because what, what he's doing is manifesting something from nothing he's it's not losing any mass by creating something completely wholly new and so it's just like an unlimited creature of mass that's just creating more and more and he the way that campbell describes it is just like i think he he really knew like i said before he was well read he he was fairly up on the scientific theories and that kind of thing at in his time. I mean, it really makes this thing seem like a real threat. Like you get the idea of how quickly this would spread, right? And how devastating it would be because they, it, each one of these things is its own individual version of the monster with its own, you know, desires and thoughts or whatever, but they also kind of work together as a whole. And it's all about spreading. And like you said, like, it doesn't lose any of its mass when it when it's like capturing things and becoming things. So it essentially can do this an infinite number of times and it, it could take over the entire world. And this is kind of what drove Blair mad. Like he was thinking about how this thing could take over the world and like literally everybody on the planet could become a monster. 
and that he it seems like he's not sure that they should be able to like that anyone should leave this base um and that might be the only way to be sure that it doesn't spread van wall brings up that he's worried he says what what if everybody here is a monster right already and we just don't realize it and he says i could be the i could be the only one who's real like who is a, who is a person and he's you know and the, the rest of you are all just these actors and so then they start talking about like well would they like why would they do that like why would the thing not show itself if if it outnumbered us all and they kind of come up with this idea that maybe it's kind of passive and that it's not like out to um like violently eat everybody it's more about just kind of like absorbing them and so it's just waiting for its chance to like absorb this final person but it's also like we know that this guy who's saying that could be a monster himself and only you know he supposedly knows it but he could just be lying so we can't even believe what he's saying and they start talking about wanting to develop another kind of test and McReady's going to think about it while they decide to turn on this movie they're going to watch a movie drown out Kenner who's like like doing like singing like psalms and stuff um, he's in like a, he, they put him in a different room, like nearby and they can hear him like shouting. And so they decide to like drown him out by turning on these movies. And also because they're all staring at each other and like freaking each other out, they decide to, if they watch something, maybe that'll kind of help with the situation and like lower tensions a little bit. And so they're watching this movie and McCready's thinking about things and he, it seems like he's coming up with an idea. And then he notices that Kenner has stopped screaming or stopped like shouting and singing or whatever he was doing. And so he like, has him shut off the movie and they go and check on him. And it turns out his throat has been cut and he comes back in and says, well, now in addition to mad men and monsters, we also have murderers among us. They, they talk about, they start having a discussion of like who killed him. And now we got to worry about people killing people. Uh, what was your, what was your take on this, on this part here? Did, where you, did you think that's what happened? And like someone did killed somebody. I did, yeah. I thought I thought it had got everything had gotten to someone, and they just decided that they were going to take it upon themselves to save the human race and start killing people they thought was were monsters, and it was going to turn out that they weren't monsters. So you thought that the person who killed Kenner thought he was a monster? Yeah, I thought I thought that he was he, he was taking it upon himself to just be like, all right, these 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 people are. Like I think I, I thought that it had gotten to him, and he was gonna. We were gonna be dealing with m- murderers as well as like they were saying, like murderers, monsters, everything. I thought I thought it was gonna be a situation where this person was just gonna be like lurking in the background, also killing people. Yeah. So I mean, you were kind of right. It, it turns out that that is basically what happened. But um, Kenner is found to be a monster. Um, but the person who killed him, which is Clark, um, yeah, Clark killed him, and he thought he had decided he had to have been a monster when he killed him. Now, I thought, I was sure that it was going to come out that he just killed him because, yeah, like you said, like maybe he thought he was a monster, but like he just took an opportunity to kill somebody because he's like paranoid and out of control. And I was really, I was, I was almost disappointed when it turned out that Kenner was a monster because it retroactively like forgives what he did. Yeah. And I think it's almost more interesting in a dark way to have him have killed another real person. Right. It would have, the the paranoia would have mounted even more just because 
then you have yeah. somebody who's lost the, the other people had gone crazy but this is the first person who killed a human being adding to yeah. the tension i feel like i, I agree yeah he kind of tries to have it both ways like he's like oh well you didn't know that so like you know he like is still introducing this idea but he also kind of forgives it and he says well now that we know he was a monster you might as well just admit what you did because we're not going to blame you essentially and and that's why clark comes forward and it's kind of weird because he didn't know that so it's i don't know it's it was interesting i i kind of i kind of wished uh he hadn't turned out to actually be a monster but they develop this is when mccready says he has a new test he's he's figured this new test out and he gathers everybody together in a room and he says i figured out that if we if you cut a monster and it bleeds the blood as soon as it separates from the body becomes its own entity with a with its own self-preservation instinct and because of that you can get the blood and you can introduce like a hot needle to it and it will it will like pull away from the hot needle whereas regular blood obviously would just sit there and like steam and so he says that's going to be the new test and they're going to they're going to find out who is and who isn't a monster all right so they test van wall first um and he he turns out to be human and then um they go to test dutton and he just like immediately transforms and they have to like gang up on him and 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 kill him and they like as a pack just like bring him down and like tear him up and then they then they fry him with the electricity then they prove that barkley is human um and then mccready then tests himself which feels like he probably should have let off with that but he didn't um he then tests himself proves that he's human and then they go to test conant and that all all along apparently conant has been a monster I was kind of surprised at how quickly they went through these tests. Like this was, this was like a, a spot where there could have been so much tension and so much, you know, with between, with every person. Instead it was like, it was like kind of also like, you know, McCready's human Conant. Oh, he was a monster. And then they had to kill him. Um, it was very fast. And then it finishes out with Gary who, who this was a cool moment. Gary, the commander Gary says like, man, I can't believe Conant you know, has been a monster all this time. I, I was so sure he was a man. And he seems to just be like, so like overwhelmed and he just can't believe it. And then come to find out he's also a monster when they test him, uh, which I thought was really cool. Cause that just shows you like how good his camouflage was. Yeah. This, this happened so much faster than I expected it to. And it's, it happened so much later than I expected it to as well. Like I was expecting this, this kind of scene to happen earlier on and we're like close to the end here. And they just ran through all the guys. They were like, this guy, it wasn't very, you know, there wasn't much tension in that reveal. It was just like, here's here's like six guys who were all monsters. We ganged up on them and beat them. It wasn't much of a struggle. And so uh, we're pretty pretty well off now that we took out all those bad guys. So it just felt like it was going to be like, oh, it's loose in the halls and they're they're having to chase it and run around and they're, they're up in the ceiling and, you know, more like yeah. tension building monster stuff. But it ended up being more sci-fi, I guess, because they just figured it out with a test and... Yeah, I think it's part of the time it was written for sure. Um, but I do also get a sense that this is the fact that Con- Campbell wasn't a horror writer, so he maybe didn't think about the idea of building tension, or maybe didn't think you know think it worthwhile, and you know the dread that you can build and the suspense. And instead of doing that, he kind of foregoes all of that for these like quick hits, which was okay. But I think it was kind of a missed opportunity. 
um, just personally, at least. All right, so we get to the final section here, and it comes out. We kind of just get it in summary that 14 of the 37 or so that were, were still around test as monsters, and they, they just kill them all. And then they take the bodies outside to burn them. And then they decide they're going to, like, sanitize everything that was touched and put acid on any, like, particles of blood and just, like, really try and um, wipe out any any sign of this, of uh, of the thing. And then as they're doing that, they realize, oh, shit, Blair's still out there in the cabin or, like, a shed, and we never tested him. So they decide to go out and test Blair. On their way there, they see this albatross flying in the air. And uh, they shoot at it, and they cause it to fly away. But they're all surprised to see it, because they didn't think there'd be any other animals. And we've talked about how they're really worried about the idea that if it took the form of, like, a flying thing, it could just, like, fly away and get anywhere. Um, So when they get to Blair's shack, they come in, and they notice... They, like, come in and see the monster that... First off, they see that Blair is one one of the monsters. And he's basically transformed into what they pulled out of the ice, from the way I read the description, like it's got the three eyes, it's got the like weird tentacles and all this stuff and kind of snake like and monstrous. And they come in and it's like working on something and they have the showdown with it. They shoot it a bunch of times. And I wanted to take a section here and, and read a little bit of the actual prose here. Cause I thought this was a really cool, a really cool little selection. The thing screamed a feral hate, a lashing tentacle wiping at blinded eyes. For a moment, it crawled on the floor, savage tentacles lashing out, the body twitching. Then it staggered up again, blinded eyes working, boiling hideously, the crushed flesh sloughing away in sodden gobbets. Which, that, like, okay, that's some good horror writing right there. That's pretty grody. Uh, that's, that's a good description of a monster. So, I, yeah, I like that. That was That was cool. Yeah, I think he does a good job. It's funny because like you said like he's he can do it he he that's grotesque and and like very horror it's kind of gory and it's a different skill to describe something in a gross way than to build suspense and and then have that suspense pay off so it's it is a little different like it's like yeah horror writers do both well often um but it's it is a little different yeah he yeah he just i don't know he he seems to be like wanting to like maybe it's just it's age maybe it's just that it's from the 30s but it seems like he's purposely um staying sci-fi and even up to this end part here this next part that we'll talk about seems like he was really trying no i don't think i don't want to say shoehorn but he was trying to add in elements of sci-fi here at the end that would leave us like with like some very very much more sci-fi than than horror or anything like that at the very end yeah, so they roast the they roast Blair or the thing that Blair became, and it they basically it crawls out of the shack and McCready flamethrowers it until it until it's done, and then they go back inside the shack and they notice the things that it's been building right, and one of the things they they think is something called an atomic generator is what they call it, and it's giving off all this heat, and then they notice hanging in the root, the top of the shack there's this like anti gravity device, and it was had like straps on it and stuff like it was going to the theory being that it was going to strap this anti-gravity device to itself and like fly away. And that they, like they got there just in time to stop it from doing this. And also they get to like, they're going to like study this new technology and it's going to be this like big find. And really the story ends on a really positive note. Like 
well, we went through all this crazy shit, but now we've got this new tech to study. You know what I mean? Like, it's going to be interesting. And, and, and McReady at one point says, what about that albatross? Do you think there's any chance? And then, like, they shut him down. Like, nah, no way. That was, it. you know, they wouldn't have built this anti-gravity device if, if it had gotten into the albatross. So it's interesting because I didn't think there was a lot of ambiguity there. But it seems like kind of a missed opportunity to put a like a creepy spin on it. I guess it depends on what like you wanted the story to be. Yeah. But I was su- really surprised they didn't put the spin of like maybe it did get away in the albatross or or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's. I mean, it just seems like it was. Na- that's a natural progression. Like that's something that if you have that in there and the bird gets away, probably a good idea to to at least leave people wondering about that bird. Yeah, and I guess you can still wonder, but from what we get in the text, it seems to be discounted as a possibility. And the other thing that I was thinking is, like, this thing is so pernicious and so, like, its ability to transform into, like, get into other life forms and the fact that they all drank the milk and, like, we still don't know what effect that may or may not have had. I'm still unsure about all these people. Like, yes, maybe their testing is not monsters, but... Does that mean they couldn't get contaminated when they're like cleaning up and like That's, become something or become a carrier? They very hastily, or or Campbell very hastily was like, yeah. And then they poured acid on everything, and everything they killed everything, and it's all clear now. And like that to me yeah. seems like the place where he left it ambiguous, and it, maybe not even on purpose. Where it was just one of those things where he's like, this is covered. Don't worry about that. He wanted the readers to follow along with him, and which kind of leads me into something I wanted to say about this book. I I did enjoy it. Um, it was fun and, and it might just be its age, but I felt like a lot of, it was a lot of like exposition heavy scenes, a lot of them telling us what's going to happen, a lot of us Mm -hmm. telling, a lot of him saying, this is how the story is going and this is, you're going to come along with it basically rather than having the reader like, uh, like kind of forcing the reader to come on along on a journey rather than having the, the reader create their own kind of well or like it inhabit the characters more closely yeah the p the pov isn't as tight as you get in a lot of uh, modern stuff and i'm sure it's, it's just the age it was written in the 30s and it's it's yeah it is it's the style was that was the that was more the style at the time than it, than it is now for sure i just thought it was pretty wild that we i, I kind of mentioned it but it, i mean an anti-gravity harness like that's like yeah that was the end that game comes out of the blue right yeah out of nowhere we had like anti-gravity and we had this like atomic generator that could power anything forever and he made like a little sun is what i like kind of interpreted from that yeah i kind of like the idea because at one point early on that the the ideas floated that maybe the thing in that they dug out wasn't even actually its real form that it took on the guise of something else that was in the ship and i kind of liked that theory but that kind of also gets swept under the rug like he proposes it but then he's like no that's not what happened that was its real form yeah and so and like with no real proof of that but if you think like i'm just right now thinking about how that is very similar to the plot of alien right and what happened with alien and the architects right and how alien in those movies is basically just a parasite it doesn't have it like they can't make their own ships right and this is mostly prometheus backstory stuff that ridley put in later right you're saying yeah i guess that's true but but i mean like it's we never got the idea that the aliens are flying around in their own ships right it was always more like they were parasites on these other races definitely and anyway it it was it it made me think of that and you know maybe this is even like a more capable version because it can actually take the form and like use their memories and and understand things that they understood 
But yeah, I mean, it was kind of given this different take at the end where it felt like this thing was actually this like brilliant star traveling creature that was like doing its own inventions. And I don't know, like it almost didn't fit with what I pictured this monster to be. Yeah. And I mean, we we both have seen the film, which is yeah. is, a, is a little different. And so yeah. they like I came in with certain preconceived notions of what was going to happen and so it, it they went hard he went fairly hard sci-fi with elements of horror and elements of mystery and that kind of thing and i mean you can like you were saying you see elements of this in alien like 40 years later yeah. so it it's like he was yeah. laying the groundwork for for people to to use his material for a long time after that yeah i mean i guess a perfect point to say that uh next week we will be doing the thing john carpenter and it's the the film version of this that we've both seen and love and i'm really excited to talk about it now that i've read this story and and get into the kind of similarities and differences and i'm going to be paying attention to a lot of things now that i otherwise wouldn't have now that i've read this for sure yeah i'm excited it, it's a movie that i always like to watch around halloween because it's just one that really i it's fun to revisit it's just a good 80s horror sci-fi blend yeah, it's fun, and I hope I hope you guys will will be interested in hearing us talk about some more horror uh, for the for the Halloween holiday. All right, I guess that's it. So if you guys want to keep in touch with us, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we are Ink to Film on all three. Uh, we have a website, inktofilm.com. You can go there, and it'll be uh, it'll it'll send you to all the other places, and you can see all of our episodes. And if you would like to help us, uh, the number one thing you can do is subscribe, uh, give us a rating on whatever platform you use, and if you'd like, leave us a little review. But that's, um, you don't always have to do that. You can also just leave a, leave a star rating, and we would greatly appreciate that. So if you'd like to, you can send us feedback at inktofilm at gmail.com. Send us comments, concerns. If you've seen the film The Thing from 1982, send us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and if you can get those into us before uh, Monday, so that'd be the Sunday the 22nd, uh, we might even be able to read some on the air. We'd also like to say thank you to Ross Bogdan for the use of our intro and outro music, and also Audible. Thank you for our affiliate link. If you guys wanted to get that 30-day free trial and one free credit for a book, it's audibletrial.com forward slash inktofilm. All right, and we'll see you next week for the movie episode. I'm Luke. And I'm James. <laughs>